Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 21, Matongo Mini Analysis. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of the venerable vault, Nathan Marchand. It's been a weird month here on Monster Island, and that's saying a lot. Bex from the Redeemed Otaku podcast returned to the island to finish the summer of Mothra after some shenanigans with Jimmy's teleporter. A little? <laughs> Jimmy, she shrank to 12 centimeters. Thankfully, Jimmy was able to restore Bex to her proper size. Then she sang to Mothra and converted back to Christianity after Reverend Mufune broke Belvere's magical influence on her. You're kidding me. Dr. Chujo played the audio of her singing, and Mothra and Mothra Leo liked it? Well, I guess we better invite her back for a radioactive karaoke night at the newly returned tavern. Jimmy, it was your fault its walls and ceiling rocketed away to the mainland after your bar fight with G-Man. Retrieving it was the least of your penance. And don't get me started on your teleporter cloning me. Jimmy, do you realize how weird that sounds? This is like Cyclops hitting on X-23 when Wolverine is around. And if I find out the two of you are secretly dating, so help me. Anyway, my magical girl pseudo-sister Jessica sent me some selfies of her and Bex cosplaying together for a stay-at-home anime con, and they seem to be having a good time. Heck, Jessica told me she's taken the last name Shaw, which was Grandma Marchand's maiden name, to give herself a more distinct identity. She's not sure when she'll return to the island, though. Does she have to? <laughs> Rhetorical question, Jimmy! Let's move into today's episode, shall we? It's another mini-analysis meant to supplement a film covered on my former podcast, Kaiju Vision Radio, after I left. We're going back to 1963 with one of Toho's greatest tokusatsu films, Matango. Although, it had the unfortunate title of Attack of the Mushroom People when released straight to TV in the U.S. in 1965. <sighs> It makes it sound like a schlockfest when it's a masterstroke in horror and suspense. In fact, when I did my independent study on Honda in grad school, Matango was one of the first films I wanted to include. Interestingly, it's based on a 1907 British short story by William Hope Hodgson called The Voice in the Night. So yes, we have an Englishman's tale being adapted by Japanese filmmakers. Wild, huh? But this wasn't even the first screen version of the story. It was adapted for Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 TV series Suspicion and starred Barbara Rush and James Coburn. It also inspired issue 9 of the horror comic The Haunt of Fear, episode 229 of Naruto Shippuden, and a, no joke, dragon-like DC comic villain who fought Swamp Thing. 
I have no doubt Ben Avery has read those issues and loves them, Jimmy. By the way, Ben, please feel free to send me feedback about those issues. As an adaptation of this story, Matango is definitely a loose one. It's more about two sailors who find someone on a boat on a misty night at sea who needs provisions for himself and his fiancée on an island, but he won't show himself. He tells them a tale of being lost at sea, taking refuge on an abandoned, mold-covered ship, encountering a living, walking mushroom man, and succumbing to hunger and eating the corruptive shrooms. There are two characters who resemble the man and his fiancée in the film, which we'll get to shortly. Before we dive into it, I thought I'd bring on the island's resident expert on the Matongo creatures. As I mentioned on Twitter, there are Matongo on Monster Island, but they're kept in a lab in the Monsterland facility's deepest basement and behind an airtight fiberglass wall that's at least three inches thick. One of those things got loose once before I came to the island and infected Baragon, and it wasn't pretty. The infection was caught soon enough and cured thanks to the work of Dr. Dante Dorif. He's the only scientist on the island brave and or crazy enough to study these things. In fact, he personally collected specimens from their habitat on a neighboring Ogasawara island before it was quarantined by the UN. All right, put him through. Hello, Dr. Dorif. Hello? Who's calling me down here in the basement? It's Nathan Marchand, the, the film curator? Marchand. Yes, I believe I've heard the name before. Yes, you uh, you run your little show upstairs. You've never visited me down here. Uh, what made you want to talk to me now? Uh, I'm uh, talking about Matango, you know, the, the, the movie? Oh, yes, yes. Probably the best film ever made, I would say. <laughs> oh, I do love it so. I, I do love my Matango children so. Uh, is that Matango I hear laughing in the background? Oh, yes, yes. We we have many. I've raised many of my children down here, alone in the darkness. I, I don't get a lot of visitors, you see. It's mostly just me and my beautiful mushroom children. So, uh, what was it like the first time you visited Matango Island? Like some kind of revelation, I... I couldn't help myself. I went to learn. I went to study them like they were some kind of creature beneath me, but I didn't know. I didn't realize until I I ate of them. You I did. ate of the Matongo. You did? Oh, oh yes, yes, I did. I, probably the greatest choice I've ever made in my life. And let me tell you, it opened my eyes to things Things you wouldn't believe. Really? Senses you've never unlocked. Yes, yes, really, really. Have you ever tasted a color? Have you ever seen a scent? Have you ever seen with eyes that felt that they'd never seen before? I, it was amazing. I had to have more. As I studied them, I took them onto myself. I ate them and did not succumb. Maybe I've been chosen. I... I really don't know, but something amazing has happened to me. I understand them now. It's like we're one. I research them, yes. I study them, yes. I live amongst them, yes. But they're not my pets. They're not some kind of exhibit. They're my children. 
They are going to change the world one day. <laughs> I know the truth. <laughs> and um, one day, uh, uh, you will know the truth. Uh, Jimmy? Uh, Jimmy? Cut you the <sighs> Coronavirus ain't got nothing on Matongo. Jeez. <sighs> Moving on. The 1960s were a transformative time for Japan. A decade of post-war malaise and protests gave way to the Japanese economic miracle and the quote-unquote golden 60s, as many put it. Prime Minister Hayato Ikeda instituted his income doubling plan, which spurred huge and rapid economic growth with the introduction of Western-style consumerism, a far cry from the asceticism of imperial Japan. A new middle class emerged as people purchased items such as refrigerators and washing machines that just a few years before were considered luxury items. By the late 1960s, Japan was the second largest economy in the world, and it continued to grow until 1989. Funny, I would have expected an economic uptick after a war in space, but I'm not an economist. Anyway... While Honda and screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa satirized this new consumerism in 1962 with King Kong vs. Godzilla, Honda and Takeshi Kimura held it up to a dark mirror in Matango. As Rifle and Godachevsky put it in their Honda biography, this, quote, taut, tense horror film rooted in psychology and proto-psychedelia is a critique of the shallow materialism and self-centered attitudes that accompany Japan's new prosperity, end quote. The film follows seven rich Tokyo socialites who are shipwrecked on a foggy island and slowly turn on one another until they succumb to the temptation to eat the mutated Matango mushrooms, which transform them into mushroom people, as referenced by the aforementioned terrible English title. Anthony Kamara explains, quote, The metamorphic human fungus bodies provide Honda with a powerful imagery for the rapidly transforming Japanese social body which had not only undergone drastic cultural, political, and economic changes in the years following World War II, but continued to do so in the mid-Showa period around the film's release, during the so-called era of high-speed growth, end quote. The film could be described as the Japanese love child of Lord of the Flies by William Golding and Gilligan's Island, which it predates by a year. It is framed much like an episode of The Twilight Zone, with scenes of the sole survivor, Mirai, played by Akira Kubo, in a psychiatric ward, complete with a twist ending. This is one of several story elements Honda may have taken from the 1920 German silent horror film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which also features a framing story set in a lunatic asylum. Over the years, Honda has mentioned several inspirations for the film, but all of them were connected to Japan's newfound opulence. In one interview, he said it was a commentary on the excessive lifestyles of foreign visitors to the Mira Peninsula which had a popular sailing community and yacht harbor in Aburatsubo Bay. This commentary was also directed at his own people, as recorded by Rifle and Godachevsky. Quote, Around this time, there were people who started to be Americanized, or have a very modern lifestyle, recalled Honda. He went on to say, There were rich people who sent their kids to school in foreign cars, that kind of thing. We tried to show that kind of social background in this film. End quote. How in the heck could you have grown up in Japan in the 60s when you... Oh, never mind. As I was saying, still elsewhere, Honda wrote that it was a commentary on the quote-unquote rebel era 
in which people were becoming drug addicts as Japan was coming off of a methamphetamine epidemic that happened from 1945 to 1957 and the quote-unquote heroin rampage that lasted from 1955 to 1962. These social developments undoubtedly influenced the creation of a film helmed by a man described by Adam Noyes in his review of the film as a quote, master of allegory, end quote. Just as a nuclear blast mutated the Matongo into horrifying and corruptive monsters, Kamara says, quote, The nuclear blasts of Hiroshima and Nagasaki provide the historical preconditions for the explosively growing economy and society of 1960s Japan, the real focus of the film's critique, end quote. This symbolic commentary begins in the film's first shot, a neon-filled Tokyo seen through a window in a psychiatric ward. It feels like the dystopian world seen later in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner and the 1996 anime Ghost in a Shell, but this is the film's present-day Tokyo. The flashing signs denote prosperity and revelry, making Tokyo look like it was Las Vegas. What happens in Tokyo doesn't stay in Tokyo? That sounds all kinds of NSFW, Jimmy, and we're a family show. Getting back to the film. Framed by the window... This view is a living painting, a distant embodiment of the Japanese economic miracle. Then Mirai steps into the frame to reveal this is a potential madman's cell. He recounts his horrifying story while staring out this window as if hypnotized by the cityscape. He was once part of this city, and now he is on the outside looking in. He sought to separate himself from the rest of humanity and its problems, only to end up a prisoner in that city. This comes full circle when the film returns to the psychiatric ward in its final moments. Mirai laments that he was too weak to eat the mushrooms and join the woman he loved on the island, that it would have been better than this cell. While he appeared unmarred at the beginning, Mirai shocks the doctors and nurses when he turns to reveal keloid scars, the beginning of a Matongo transformation. The scene ends with him gazing out the window and indicting the city. I wonder... Is it really any different in Tokyo? They're becoming inhuman. Just like there. I would have been happier there. The symbolism of the Tokyo cityscape in this final shot and in the first scene comes into full focus. According to Kamara, quote, Honda thus identifies the neon glow of the city with the bioluminescence of the fungal body, implying that the city and its residents are no different from the jungle and its denizens, a degraded superorganism, a sprawling form of lower mitochological life radiating a sickly, unnatural glow of vitality, end quote. It is an ending that held personal poignancy for Kimura, a pessimist who despised people and did not believe humanity could take care of itself, and who late in his life withdrew from society until he died in Tokyo, a city he hated. This illustrates a statement made by the mushroom-influenced writer Yoshida, played by Hiroshi Takikawa. Quote, If you eat matango, you become inhuman. End quote. Mirai, and by proxy Kimura, on the other hand, says people are already inhuman. Even the seemingly honorable Mirai cannot escape sin. Perhaps he, as actor Akira Kubo believed, ate the mushroom. Whether he did or not... His partial transformation is a visual symbol of his corruption, however slight, showing that even the most noble people can and will succumb to society's moral degeneration. This framing device paints Japan's newfound prosperity as hedonistic and dark. 
it echoes the final acts of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, where, spoiler warning, it is revealed that the film's narrator is in fact a patient at the asylum, and that the characters in his story were inspired by his fellow patients and the director, the latter being cast as a villainous hypnotist. Like Matongo, Cabinet leaves the audience asking questions about the perception of reality, the nature of madness, and the extent of human cruelty. How could you have seen Dr. Caligari a hundred years ago when... Never mind, I'm staying on task! The small cast of seven characters serve as a cross-section of Japanese society at the time. Honda drew inspiration from a headline-making newspaper story about yachting youth. Thrill-seeking rich kids were rescued after they took their father's yacht out to sea. Kimura's early drafts paralleled this incident with characters who were, quote, spoiled young sons of the moneyed class, end quote, according to Rifle and Gotacheski. From this, they evolved into Kasai the producer, Sakuda the skipper, Mommy the singer, Yoshida the novelist, Koyama the sailor, Mirai the professor, and Akiko the student. They are all moneyed or hired by those with money. Kasai represents the emerging salaryman, salaryman class, which came to symbolize the social category Japanese employees sought to achieve. Mommy, played by the brilliant and beautiful Kumi Mizuno, and Yoshida as the narcissistic and hedonistic artists, exemplify post-war escapism and indulgence. Marai and Akiko represent the people who, after moving to urban zones, sought secondary and post-secondary degrees to compete in the job market. Koyama embodies the sort of blue-collar work left behind in this new Japanese economy. Mommy's song, which repeats la-la-la over and over, is as inane and empty as their lives. They toast the fact that they have separated themselves from fellow Tokyoites and escaped the city's problems, an act that plants the seeds of their eventual doom. As if in response, a storm erupts and sets them adrift until they reach a bizarre island. In fact, the boat's name, Ahadori, means albatross in Japanese, which, by the way, was also the name of the ship in The Voice in the Night. As explained in the Rime of the Ancient Mariner, an albatross was seen as a symbol of innocence and God's creation, while a dead albatross was a symbol of sin. Killing an albatross could curse a sailor's voyage. Really? You think you hit an albatross flying to the Goten base during the war in space? I never pictured you as superstitious. Anyway, this is reflected by the Ahadori being wrecked by the storm. The longer the group stays on the island, the more they are undone. All the power, money, and influence they accrued in Tokyo means nothing here. Sakuda, played by Hiroshi Koizumi, has his authority usurped, so he takes the ship and abandons the group, dying afterward, reinforcing the albatross symbolism. Mommy becomes a temptress who relishes having men fight over her, a trait that transforms her into a dark Eve for this hellish Eden. Koyama, played by David the Kaiju Apostle Marshall's man crush Kenji Sahara, sells turtle eggs for yen despite the money being useless. Perhaps it stemmed from a vain hope for rescue, but more likely it is to maintain a semblance of prosperity. Either way, the bills blanketing his corpse when he is shot by Kasai add irony to his death. Even the conscientious Mirai and the chaste Akiko surrender to despair and hopelessness. In the end, with this microcosm of 1960s Japanese society, Honda suggests, as Kamara wrote, their socioeconomic and sexual conflicts, quote, 
threatened the group's identity as Nihonjin, a coherent, unified Japanese people, end quote. The film's underlying message is Matango does not make people inhuman, it reveals their innate inhumanity. Fungus, due to its role as a decomposer, has long been associated with death and decay, and here it serves as a metaphor for social and moral degeneration. The characters displayed vice before they reached the island. The flashback to the nightclub, which highlighted Kasai's greed and Yoshida's intellectual thievery, make this clear. It is symbolized by the shattered mirrors that were removed by the wrecked ship's crew to avoid seeing themselves transform into mushroom people. These metamorphoses were physical manifestations of their true selves, and they could not bear to look at them. Eating the mushrooms breaks down what few inhibitions the characters have, thereby making them more like themselves. In a brilliant move, Honda chose not to have Kumi Mizuno covered in deformations after she eats the mushrooms, but instead to make her more beautiful to accentuate her role as a temptress. Amidst the Japanese economic miracle was the aforementioned meth epidemic and the heroin rampage, which were times of, quote, great pessimism and pleasure-seeking, end quote, says Kiyoshi Wada. As Japan sought to reestablish itself and create a new national identity after the U.S. occupation, it fell into what became known as the Hurapin Philippine Age from 1952 to 1956, which shattered the contemporary image of Japan as a substance-free nation. Horopin, or heroin, was implicated in many crimes, the most infamous being the rape and murder of the schoolgirl Kiyoko Hosoda in 1954. According to Miriam Kingsburg, combating meth became a top priority for the new government and law enforcement because, quote, the methamphetamine addict was a symbol of the post-war nation, a powerless victim, a prisoner of anxiety, a bullied inferior, and above all, a deeply flawed, even strange personality, end quote. This certainly describes Akiko and the other characters when Mirai finds them in the veritable opium den that is the Matango Forest. They have disappeared into a hedonistic haze, thinking only of consuming the mushrooms and enticing others to do the same. Noyes likened this to heroin addiction. Quote, it's described in this film that the mushrooms are very intoxicating. Not only are they intoxicating, they make you want to eat more. And in the process, you lose who you are as a human being. That's what these mushrooms do, and that's what heroin does. The more you take, the happier you feel, but you lose yourself in the process. You become something unrecognizable by your friends and family, end quote. The irony is, in the case of meth, the drugs were originally produced and marketed as cures for low blood pressure, sleepiness, and sluggishness. Not only that, hallucinogens and zen were beginning to be tied together when trippers showed up high to temples in the early 1960s as the Japanese counterculture mixed drugs and spirituality. In the film, most of the mushroom people promised delicious food and, implicitly, happiness and pleasure. The price was the loss of self. Yeah, that might explain a thing or two about Dr. Dorif. Where was I? Ah, yes. By eating Matongo, the characters become slaves to the mutated fungus, developing what seems to be sadistic personalities and laughing at the confusion and misery of their victims. While this psychedelic scene seems campy to some American audiences, Kamara says, quote, Theirs is not merely the psychotic laughter of insanity, but 
that of capitalistic enjoyment of excess, whether of sex, luxury, or drugs, that is always on the side of decadence, end quote. In the end, as Oscar Wilde once said, the only way to get rid of temptation is to submit to it. It's strange that the idealistic Honda would create such a downbeat film. He tries to inject some optimism with Mirai's statement, quote, under trying conditions, man tends to become selfish and cruel. That's when we must act in a rational manner. We must help each other, end quote. However, this is swallowed up by the fog of Matango and serves as, quote, a bitter reflection of the scarcity of virtue in Showa Japan, end quote, according to Kamara. Honda tackled the film with great enthusiasm, seeing it as a serious and somber drama, perhaps like the ones he had directed before doing genre pictures. But he was also disillusioned with where Japan and the world were headed at the time. Perhaps it is because of these conflicting emotions that Honda was able to direct such a unique, multi-layered horror film. It is a story that requires deep dives to understand, and one that could fill entire books with various interpretations. Next to Godzilla, it is one of Honda's greatest achievements. And that, kaiju lovers, barely scratches the surface with this amazing film. We have some listener feedback to read, but first... The Monster Island Film Vault will return after these messages. Hey there, audio listener. Michael here. Nathan and Jimmy were gracious enough to let me interrupt today's episode and invite you to listen to my show, The Kaiju Groupie Podcast. During each episode, I'll be sitting down with kaiju and tokusatsu fans just like you to discuss a wide range of topics from around the fandom. Who knows, I may even have Jimmy come on to discuss his love of gangster rap and find out how the heck he survived the war in space. No, Kenny, I said Jimmy, as in Jimmy from NASA. Besides, I fired you, remember? Anyway, my show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you find your favorite Giant Monster Podcasts. A link to an episode will be in today's show notes, so until then, I'm Michael, the Kaiju Groupie, letting you get back to your normally scheduled program. And we're back. So, given that this episode already went a bit long, I can't get to all of our listener feedback without violating my contract. So I'll have to save some for next month. Regardless, let's start with this Twitter message from Kyoitoshi of the Japanese podcast Kaijo. I confess that this feedback is a long time coming. She sent this to me on Twitter all the way back on April 15th, and it had to do with my interview of Eric Elliott from Batman Meets Godzilla. She writes... Hello, Nathan. Just heard your interview with Eric. Very nice. One thing I thought I would bring to your attention is this thread over on the 1966 Batman forum. It's something I posted in conjunction with a friend using their account. The big takeaways are that the Sekizawa forgery doesn't match his handwriting, the 1965 forge treatment contains the Barbara Gordon Batgirl, this character wasn't developed until late 1967 when Dozier and DC Comics editor Carmine Infantino developed her... The man who made this up wasn't aware of that, and that the unpublished works book has no images of the script, just a bare-bones two-line listing. I think Eric is correct that he says we'll never know for sure. 
Toho has been good about letting Japanese scholars look at their unproduced scripts. There are lots that are printed in full in the unpublished works book, but they have never been able to produce the document for the alleged Sekizawa treatment. And then she shared the link to that thread, which I did look over. And then a little bit later, she wrote me again and said, I'd love to see a real script surface someday and see how it might actually have developed into the Dozier treatment. Personally, my view is that the Dozier treatment was written by an American who got caught up in the explosion of interest in Japanese culture seen in the wake of the 1965 Tokyo Olympics. Actually, that was 1964, but maybe I'm crazy. There are all kinds of books and articles written then that sparked a lot of interest among foreigners who embraced it and wanted to learn more. Sounds a little bit like this podcast. So, thank you very much. I know I got a few bits of feedback from Kyoe in regarding that interview and regarding that treatment, some of which I did discuss with Eric Elliott on that episode. I highly recommend going back into the archive and listening to that interview, especially since issue two of Batman Meets Godzilla will be coming out soon. Next, we have an email clarifying an Apple podcast review from Diego D. He writes, Good day. Sorry for the delay in responding to your question regarding the review I left on my iTunes review of your show. I think the problem is that on a phone, the podcast app does not show the full title of my review. If seen on a computer, the full title can be seen. Quote, new face on Mount Rushmore of Kaiju Podcasts? Yes, the question mark makes it a bit cheeky and is a reference to Michael Hamilton's review. The remark about the chisel is hopefully additional encouragement to keep doing the great work you and Jimmy are doing. When someone actually starts making the giant faces into the side of Shibusama Mountain on Hahajima, second largest of the Ogasawara Islands, they need a chisel to add your slash Jimmy's face to the set. So yes, a long-winded explanation of a joke. Again, thanks for the podcast and best and safe wishes to all, Diego. P.S. Not sure of what my iTunes username is either. Made since 10 years ago, I'm sure. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm actually a little surprised with myself that I didn't make that connection to the chisel and Mount Rushmore and all that kind of stuff. And you know what? If someone decided to make such a thing on Ogasawara, I would be all for it. I visited that mountain. It is a wonderful place. You know what, Jimmy? Maybe you and I should go there again, do some hiking. You can bring Jet Jaguar along. I saw that you had posted pictures on your Twitter of you and him taking a walk on the beach. I think that would be fun. I'm glad you agree. So now you just need to do a little convincing with Jet, right? Oh, you don't think it'll take much persuasion? Well, I guess that makes sense. The the lab where he was built looks like it was in the side of a mountain, kind of. I'm not sure, but he can grow to gigantic size anyway. It'll make it easier to, uh, to climb the mountain. So there's that. He can kind of cheat. But anyway, thanks again for writing in. Have you seen Matongo? If you haven't, what are you waiting for? Do it. Do it now. And when you're done, feel free to send us feedback on this or any other film we've covered so far. You're always welcome to join the discussion. Our email address will be in the credits. You want sweet, sweet fan mail? Oi. Before we continue, I want to give shout-outs to our patrons, Travis Alexander and Michael the Kaiju Groupie Hamilton, co-hosts of the Kaiju Weekly Podcast, Danny DeManna, author of the Godzilla Novelization Project, Eli Zilla 13, and Chris Cook, host of the One Cross Radio Podcast. Thanks for your support. 
Next time, my friends, Joe and Joy Metter will make a long-awaited return to Monster Island to start the Daimajin days as I take them through the Daimajin trilogy, starting with the titular first film. Just remember not to use the teleporter to get them here, Jimmy. Nope. I'm not letting you live down cloning me. And now, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcasters. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to spread the word about the show. You can also support MIFV on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! Sayonara!